Good, beautiful winter morning. I love and the opportunity we get to connect with you. It is amazing because our weather has just been balmy and beautiful. And our church is just a buzz of activity. We had a wonderful concert last week. We've got a play this week. We've got so many activities. Today, if you've attended or if you watched first service, you know what happens if you're still waiting for second service or fourth service, I should say. Uh, make sure that you tune in because we've got the Messiah. If you watch us during our anthem services, you know that they have a original piece of music that is going out. And we just hope that everything we are doing is for your benefit, because that's why we produce content. We do it all for you. So we're going to have a discussion, a part two of uh, our lesson uh, from last week. But before we do that, we're going to pray and then I'll ask my co-host to jump in and we'll discuss a very, very interesting story uh, that is found in, in Matthew 15. Jesus, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for the capacity you give us to come together and to connect. And as we do that, Lord, we ask that you remind us that the purpose of our lives, the purpose of our thoughts, the purpose of our resources, it is all, all, all to bless you. So we pray that you continue blessing us both here in Loma Linda and the world around, for we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Joey, how are you? Doing well. Yeah, just in the swing and the heart of our Advent season. Mm. Yeah, all the concerts that you mentioned. Plus, um, we have Ladies' Tea. Ladies' Tea today, yes. Yeah, and so um, we know the tickets for that are very, very popular. Sometimes it's difficult to get. But yes. if you were not able to get a ticket or you're not here in the Loma Linda area, you can you can watch that broadcast live as well. So we'll be streaming that. Live as well from yeah. our brand new fellowship hall. Yes. So that's going to be super exciting. We completely sold out. And that is just a testament to how involved some of our volunteers are. Because as you know, uh, this is a special year-end thank you to all of our volunteers that make ministry in this church happen. And we are just thrilled that all of our tickets... Uh, we're sold out. We're sorry if you couldn't get tickets. Um, if we could, we would go over to your house and knock on your door and bring you some tea and maybe uh, some goodies. But I think the next best thing you can do is just tune in uh, today. Also important Sabbath because it is our year-end giving Sabbath, Joey. This is uh, the big Sabbath when, as you know, we kind of... Uh, procure our little nest egg that is going to carry us through the lean uh, months here in, in the beginning of the winter leading into the spring. Uh, we depend on those year-end gifts not only uh, to pay off uh, our monthly responsibilities for the new building, but also uh, for our church budget and anything that we contribute over the $2 million mark goes to pay off our principal, which is a fantastic, fantastic thing. So if you've given already, thank you. If you are thinking about giving and you're finding some meaning in what we do, please con uh, consider partnering with us. And if God has not blessed you financially this year, and I know that during this time of the season, sometimes resources are limited, don't worry. You are a valued member of our community as well. Yes. And even if um, if our viewers are not here from the Loma Linda area, 
um, just an insider's tip, we record in the new building. And so um, this set is a part mm -hmm. of, of what benefit what benefits we get from being a part of this mm. this this structure. And maybe sometime we can give them a little bit of an insider's view of our studio set one time yeah. as well. In the yeah, future. Joey, you must have been chatting with Pastor Doug at some point because we've been having uh, that conversation as we turn into the new year. The purpose of this building, as you know, wasn't only uh, to help us have ministries that benefit locally. And I know you have a, a Sabbath school that happens on Saturday in uh, the second floor of our building. We have language Sabbath schools. We have small group Sabbath schools. Uh, we have generational Sabbath schools. But one of the things that we also realized is Loma Linda was a global community. Mm -hmm. And because we were a global community, we needed to construct uh, programming that was intended solely for the consumption of people like you out there. And this was one of the first things we did. We're hoping in this new studio to start generating some more uh, original content. So stay tuned for what is coming. I know our media team has some really interesting plans and things that we can collaborate on in the new year. That's exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Not as much as I'm looking forward to talking. See, that's that's what we call in the business a segue. Not as much as I'm interested in talking about uh, Matthew 15. Um, it seems like this whole quarter, Joey, uh, the purpose and the driving force behind the lesson has been to get us thinking about how to do missions in a winsome way. Mm. And again, I'm not sure uh, that I like the title for these two lessons. That just might be a personal preference. Um, but I think that the point stands. Uh, in any group, there's going to be insiders and outsiders. And I think church uh, should be defined by a philosophy where we always strive to make ins outsiders feel like insiders. And that requires the work of those who are in the know. And that, as we will find in Matthew 15, requires some risk, some vulnerability, and probably most shocking of them all, some opportunities to learn and to recognize that even Jesus didn't get everything right all the time. Yeah. And as you, know, you talk about insiders and outsiders, but... As I've been reading the scriptures with that kind of view, it's been surprising to me how much of scripture focuses on the importance of hospitality, mm -hmm. right? Many times I've thought of hospitality as something like the hospitality in industry, mm -hmm. right? Where people sleep or stay or hospitality is providing some kind of food, a meal for guests. But really that ethic of hospitality, this idea that those who are on the margins um, that that they're brought in and they're given the same rights and privileges mm -hmm. uh, as those who are in this inner circle. That kind of mentality is at the heart of the gospel. Mm. I mean, that's what God does for us, right? We left, we mm -hmm. left the center. We chose to enter into sin, and God came out into the margins to bring us mm -hmm. back in. And so that that is really at the core of what we as Christians are called to do. So missions then isn't just the communication of information or maybe even the conversion of people's viewpoints to match our own. Mission, I think, at its most basic level has to do with our capacity to serve. Mm -hmm. And so 
at least in, in the context of the gospel, and I think piggy, uh, connecting and linking, maybe even piggybacking on what you're saying, this idea of mission in the context of, of hospitality is a project that always has to be initiated by those who are uh, privileged, by those who are on the inside, by those who have the resources. Not that people who aren't can't participate meaningfully in the body of Christ, mm. but it seems like the expectation that God has for those of us to whom much was given mm. is a bit higher than the one that exists for people, as you said so so eloquently, on the margins. Yeah. And you see that chosenness in scripture, even in the Old Testament, that chosenness is not to just become this exclusive mm -hmm. group separate from mm -hmm. everyone else, but just like Abraham's original call, we've talked about this, he is to be blessed, to be a blessing to others, mm -hmm. right? So the idea is that if you are given some kind of privileged position, that is always meant to be used mm -hmm. to benefit others. Now, how are we going to use it to benefit others if we don't have the adventurous spirit to venture into places unknown? And that's, I think, why it's so important, the way in which uh, Matthew couches this narrative, right? He has Jesus embarking on this trek north um, to, to Tyre and Sidon. And it's really fascinating the language um, that uh, Matthew decides to, to utilize. This story is found uh, in the Gospel of Luke as well. And in the Gospel of Luke, as you know, it's the Syrophoenician woman. Mm -hmm. Here in Matthew, Matthew decides to call her a Canaanite. And the rationale for that, I think, is because Matthew is the gospel for insiders, right? Matthew is a gospel intended to be read by a Jewish audience. And there are some really, really implicit biases when you're a Jew reading and the word Canaanite, uh, to use a modern uh, day phrase, it triggers you. Yeah. The word Canaanite uh, immediately to the reader uh, causes this trigger because it reminds them of a long struggle that has been happening in that particular place of the world between those whom God has called to be a blessing uh, to all the other nations and the people surrounding. And so I think not only is um, Jesus geographically moving into an area that is uncomfortable, Luke, by his choice in language, is also also causing us uh, to feel a little bit uh, ill at ease. Uh, so we we already, from uh, verse 21, have had our uh, equilibrium set off balance. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I, I love how you bring up the, the impact of the, the term Canaanite and how that would have felt to the Jews who are reading the book of Matthew. Mm -hmm. or their, uh, Matthew is the book that's gospel that is most targeted towards Jews, it, it's, a, it's a phrase that would have um, harkened back to, to the Jewish conquest mm -hmm. of Canaan, right? And this idea that they are the enemy, mm -hmm. right? It viscerally brought, brings up feelings of, oh, they are, they are the people that we are meant to separate ourselves from. These are the people that we were meant to kick out completely. These, they are the enemy. And then, and then um, you brought up Luke in Mark. Um, he gets even more specific. He says in verse twenty, chapter seven, verse twenty-six, the woman was a Greek, born 
in Syrophoenicia, mm-hmm. right? So, so Matthew uses this term sort of as a blanket phrase for all the outsiders, you're Canaanite. Mark gets very specific. He says, well, the woman wasn't even Canaanite. You know, she's, she's Greek, but she was born in Syrophoenicia, mm-hmm. right? So he gets very specific and it, 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 it reminds me of this, this dynamic that um, psychologists talk about how we have this tendency to think that those who are not us are all the same. Mm-hmm. And those who are us are different. Like when people talk about Christians, and if we are we, we are a Christian, we see nuances between right. Christians, right? Those who are not Christians look at Christians and see like a, a block of people mm-hmm. who all think the same, believe the same, act the same. But being Christians, we realize, no, there are nuances and there are differences and there are different beliefs. There are different ways of practicing Christianity that separate different Christians. So we recognize the nuances. But when we look at, when we as Christians look at a different group, like Muslims, for example, we, I mean, I think of Muslims as one block. But I'm, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone were a Muslim, they would say, no, there is a lot of difference between right. various different groups of Muslims. We're not all the same, right? So we have this tendency to think that those who are not us are all the same. Mm-hmm. And while we can see the nuances and differences between ourselves and, and the group that we sometimes mm-hmm. get grouped in with. And it's so important that, that the first step towards humanizing people is not just to see people as a blanket block group, but understand that people are nuanced mm-hmm. and different and trying to understand individuals rather than just whole categories mm-hmm. of people. And that's a powerful dynamic that you see just by comparing the passage in Matthew and the description in the mm-hmm. book of Mark. That's that's brilliant. Um, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Daniel Kahneman's wonderful book, mm-hmm. Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, right? Yeah. Uh, processes uh, where you where you typically separate and bunch up things are really good uh, f- to make these in these initial valuations of kind of where you stand. But if that's all that's where you end, what you end up with is uh, rather superficial. So it's not just that we have kind of the singularity of the woman being uh, championed by these two gospel accounts. It's also that we are having these theological presuppositions that people have challenged. Mm. There was a really, really strong current in the Old Testament that stated that the primary problem with Israel was directly linked to their inability to enact uh, God preordained harem. So harem is a word in, in Hebrew that uh, basically uh, refers to the complete and total annihilation of everyone, men, women, children, animals, the land. Um, and so in order to do that, uh, you do understand how uh, it's necessary to engage in the process that you're mentioning, right? You have to separate and call them the other without any nuance. Yeah. And Israel, for X, Y, or Z reason, uh, is unable to completely, completely eradicate the Canaanites. And what I love about this particular story, and uh, later on a story that uh, that Mark will tell us, is that whereas uh, a lot of the theological thought in 
in the time was that Israel's fall had to do with their inability to eradicate the Canaanites. You have Jesus moving towards Moving towards Canaanite people in a way that is winsome and wholesome. Mm -hmm. So you have it here in um, Matthew 15, and then you remember in Mark, uh, depending uh, what uh, version you read, uh, the Markan account or the Lucan account, you have either one or two people uh, from Decapolis. And uh, Decapolis is again another area that is inhabited by quote unquote Canaanites. And you have uh, Jesus return, uh, people come, he feeds 4,000 people, and uh, the gospel writer kind of as a, as a footnote says, oh, and by the way, there were seven baskets left of food. Mm-hmm. This is after the feeding of the 5,000 in uh, Judea where there's 12 baskets left. Here's what's really interesting. There were seven tribes of Canaan. Uh, so in the Old Testament, the command to uh, completely eradicate the Canaanites, actually goes down the name of the seven tribes, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perishites, the Girgashites. Mm-hmm. So you've got these seven tribes, and here in, in the New Testament, it seems like uh, the gospel is saying, and now these seven tribes are going to be included and fed by the bread of life. And here, these seven tribes, these descendants of these seven tribes, are going to be liberated from the power of uh, evil by the one who came to set us free. Wow. I mean, that's a powerful reversal. And one that is understandably disturbing Mm -hmm. to the Jews, right? Because that's they they finally feel like they've learned that lesson the lesson right. that their ancestors failed to learn mm-hmm. over and over again because they kept on flocking to their neighbors and taking on their neighbors religions and idolatry and and then disease would come or war would come or exile would come and to punish them for doing that finally they feel like they've learned that lesson and they're faithful to god by excluding mm. the other and now jesus comes and mm. flips everything mm-hmm. So I, I just kind of wonder how Joshua, you know, Joshua who led his people to the conquest of and followed God's instructions, how he would have experienced what mm. Jesus is doing mm. here. And why why does this reversal happen here? Why why can't they and this is, you know, honestly, um in my in my in the, my young professional Sabbath school rooted, we studied through we read through the book of Joshua. We studied Joshua together, and that was one of the most challenging questions for mm-hmm. us: was why couldn't they? Why couldn't they do what Jesus did later at that time? Mm. Why did they have to go in and conquer and kill and mm. and carve out a place? I mean, to a certain extent, I, we understand that. I mean, these people weren't going to let them just walk in and take mm-hmm. their land, right? So there was war that was inevitable, conflict that was in, 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 inevitable. But what what made it so that they couldn't be an influence mm-hmm. back then? And now Jesus is asking mm-hmm. for us to do that here. How is that different? How is the situation? Is it that the situation is the time different? Is it because Jesus came and finally um, God has come to earth, mm-hmm. and so that changed everything? H- how do you understand? How do you understand the different approaches brought in in the book of Joshua versus the book of Matthew? That's here? that's a great question, and that in that question, I think lies uh, our basic framework for understanding Scripture. Mm. 
Um, and I think the first principle that you've already kind of alerted us to is the fact that the Christ event changes everything. Mm. Um, we as human beings, when we are trying to understand the will of God, even in Scripture, mm. we, we get it wrong. We get it wrong time and time and time and time and time again. And so interpretively, forget, not just uh, with our soteriology or our salvation, just interpretively for our, ex, for our own hermeneutic and exegesis, it is important to first and foremost ask the question, how does Jesus feel about a particular issue? Mm. Um, so I think that the fact that Jesus came changed everything. Mm. The second... Uh, thing, though, is uh, then undoubtedly, and I've had uh, people from church, I've had students, I've had this question asked, and it's, it's, I think, a really valid question. What do we do with the Old Testament then? Yeah. Because if all we need is Jesus, mm -hmm. then uh, there's uh, the majority of Scripture. Uh, do we still, do, does it still have any authoritative value? And you know the story of Marcion, a great theologian, our early church father, uh, said, you know what, the, go the God of the Old Testament too difficult to, to understand, so we're going to stick with the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So a couple things on the Old Testament for those of you who venture into, um, into these difficult lands and these difficult books like Joshua, like some, chap some places in Numbers, for example. First and foremost, you understand the gospel. Mm -hmm. I think the second thing is you realize that even in the Old Testament, war, death, and destruction isn't God's ideal. Mm -hmm. So um, there are several different uh, theories on how the conquest happened. There's the story of the conquest as found in Joshua. Mm -hmm. But if you read the, the book of Judges carefully, you know that Judges paints a picture that is a bit more nuanced. It's not as much um, of Israel coming and just murdering everyone, saying we're here. Um, Norman Gottwald, Old Testament scholar, says it was more of a peaceful migration where these Jews come, uh, they have this story of oppression from Egypt, and that story galvanizes people. And after, and, and so there, there seem, it seems to be a more prolonged process uh, and less violent. So even in scripture, you know, there's there's these there's these almost competing uh, images of how stuff happened. But even if you take so you say, well, do I have to then choose between the picture in num uh, in Judges or the picture of Joshua? And then is Joshua not authoritative, or is Leviticus uh, that is giving you uh, a play by play uh, basic uh, manual on how to enact holy war. Is that not valid or is that not authority? Do we, do we throw some books out? And what I would say even to that is even within, so you have Jesus, then you have the fact that there are these competing pictures mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, and then you have within the same book. Mm -hmm. And even within the same book, right, Joey, it seems like the ideal isn't death and destruction. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I know that is because 
both in Leviticus and in Joshua, Israel, after coming back from war, is commanded to do something. They are not to go back into the into the camp where God's holy presence is. They are to purify themselves outside of the camp for seven days. And so even within the text, gory, brutal, and barbaric as it is, there seems to be a hint that God's ideal isn't uh, the death and the destruction. Otherwise, why would you need purification? Yeah. And also within the book of Joshua, I love how you're bringing up all these different dynamics because even in the book of Joshua, there is a difference that there, there is a, a hint that God doesn't it, truly intend for them to destroy everybody. Mm -hmm. Because in, in, the, at, in the book of Joshua, it talks about how in, in one, one place they destroyed and killed everybody. But later on, in that same place, later on in the book of Joshua indicates that there were still people, people living there. Yeah. So, so there is this idea that that the way that it's written, that there is a certain amount of hyperbole, understood hyperbole, not intentionally trying to deceive. Otherwise, why would they include what right. actually happened later on in the same book, right? So there is this idea that that maybe that it's more of a theological idea mm -hmm. that's trying to be communicated, which is don't let these people corrupt Correct. you, right? So that there that 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 separation is important at that stage because at that point in Israel's development, they were not ready right. for those kinds of interactions. But talking to your idea of how um war and destruction and violence even throughout the Old Testament, is not God's ideal. I mean, the same is told of David, right? right? The rationale that's given for David not constructing God's temple is because he is a man mm -hmm. of war and blood, right? Mm -hmm. He has blood on his hands. And he has blood on his hands because he was protecting God's right. people, right? Which he, he needed to do. But at the same time, God is trying to communicate this is not, this is not, this is not my mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. This is not ideally my way. And he's trying to move his people past it. Mm -hmm. And so that understanding, I think is so important. This understanding that, that one snapshot of how God deals with people isn't enough to encapsulate all of what God is trying to do, mm -hmm. which is why I do believe the Old Testament is so important, right? Because without the Old Testament, we cannot see how God has been leading his mm -hmm. people to the new, right? That there is this development. And if God is developing people all the way up to the Christ event, till when Jesus comes, there seems to also be a movement of God moving people throughout the book of Acts as well mm -hmm. to a greater understanding that that. He, there are hints, like in the passage that we're, we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 15 of the Syrophoenician woman, there's already hints that Jesus' Jesus's mission is broader than just to the Jews, but that becomes very explicit in the book of Acts, right? That journey throughout. So is it possible that God even now is trying to lead mm. his people, that it's not just being grounded in what and who God was in the gospels and what we know about God through the gospels, but perhaps God is trying to help us understand him even more and trying to lead us to follow him in mm -hmm. ways that may not have been clear to even the gospel writers. Yeah, that's so good. So much, so much to mind from what you just said. Um, wow. 
So think about, you You use the word hyperbole, and a lot of people look at that and they say, well, wait a second, uh, I thought that the Bible, um, Paul, I think, pens it, right? Every uh, scripture is God-breathed. Uh, so what do I do with this idea? And I think what, what you're reminding us is that life is complex, and people are trying to figure it out. Uh, they're trying to figure out their spirituality as they walk with God. And so even within the same books, you have these ideas of people just trying to figure out, okay, well, let's kill them all. Wait, that's, I'm not comfortable with that. And so you, you go back and we've got to remember that whoever wrote it didn't write it in one sitting. There was a process of conversing and oral tradition and telling these stories and capturing the stories and thinking about the stories and meditating and wrestling with the stories. And then there were editors that would come and wrestle with that. And some people make the argument that when you recognize all of those things, what you're actually doing is devaluing the authority of scripture. I want to propose that that actually enhances the authority of Scripture because it reflects how complex our relationship with, with God and with the world around us ought to be. And so it forces us to ask those very same questions that you're, that you're pointing to. Namely, if you are called to wrestle with these theological principles within Scripture, ought you not to be called to continue that experience of wrestling here and now? And beyond that, are you able to accept praise and truth from people whom you find theologically abhorrent? Because no, no sooner has... Matthew upset the equilibrium with his readership as they're saying, wait a second, there's a Canaanite woman here. And the woman then refers to Jesus by the most, uh, the most Jewish name that he can, that she can, right? It's not rabbi as he is referred to in Matthew by those who don't understand him. It's not master that is referred, uh, which is the preferred term uh, by those who are in the inner circle. Instead, she chooses the idea, this idea of kudios, son of David, Lord, son of David. And in that is encapsulated Israel's uh, whole salvation history. Mm -hmm. This idea of a, David, a Davidic forebearer and forerunner mm -hmm. um, and, and the purpose of, of the Davidic uh, line intended ultimately to bring harmony and connection between uh, the people and God. And this woman yeah. is the recognizes that very Jewish concept immediately. And so it, it pushes us to ask the question, not only how much do we wrestle, but how open are we to, to take theological truth from people whom we might find abhorrent? Wow. Wow. And you know what? Ellen White makes the same point, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of this lesson, there's a quote from Desire of Ages where Ellen White says, among those whom the Jews styled heathen, right? These are the those that Jews saw as abhorrent, mm -hmm. right? Were men who had a better understanding of the scripture prophecies concerning the Messiah than had the teachers in Israel. There were some who hoped for his coming as a deliverer from sin. Philosophers endeavored to study into the mystery of the Hebrew economy, but the bigotry of the Jews mm. hindered 
the spread of the light. Mm. I mean, is it possible that sometimes those who are outside have a clearer view of what's happening than those of us who are in the inside, right? Because sometimes our bigotry, and I'm using that word in a very broad sense, right? That our prejudices, our, our presuppositions keep us from being able to see things that we've heard about for years. But somebody who comes and looks at it with fresh eyes, they're able to see some of the cracks and some of mm. the challenges that we are not able to see. Mm. And so is it possible that God sometimes uses those who are not within our circle, our community of faith, to help us recognize some of the gaps that we have? Mm. Because I don't think any of us, I hope that none of us would claim to have a complete understanding of God, right? None of us have that complete understanding of God, which means all of us have room to grow in our view of who God is. So is it possible that sometimes God brings those eyes from outside of our community of faith, outside of our circle of those we, we deem safe, and say, they are going to help you understand things about mm. me that you have difficult seeing, difficulty seeing? And is it possible then that this is the primary point of the story? Mm. Because let's face it, this is the next part of this is a really complicated passage. Yeah. And it's complicated because all, two, uh, two primary interpretive lenses are used. The first one is saying, well, Jesus is just reflecting the uh, attitudes of his time. Second is, well, what Jesus says and how Jesus interacts with this woman is not that bad. Mm. And I think both of those <laughs> interpretive uh, approaches are extremely simplistic and I think miss what is actually happening. It seems to me uh, that what Jesus is doing here is modeling uh, for us the spirit that people ought to have when truth when truth and faith are experienced from those who are in the outside. Mm. So, um, obviously, having a woman yelling uh, and walking behind you, particularly a Canaanite woman for Jewish men uh, on the road by themselves, is uh, taboo. And so the disciples immediately uh, say, hey, uh, can you send her away? Mm. Jesus then uh, answers very curtly. And the original language here is really interesting because it's almost like Jesus is exasperated. He turns and he says, go away. I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And the, the woman says, Lord, uh, she comes, she kneels. There's this really cool uh, Greek word that we, first year seminarians we learn, a proskineo, which is kind of this bowing of worship. She says, Lord, help me. And then he replies. And here's where... Here's where most inter most commentaries go off the rails. He replies, verse uh, 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Mm. If you read some commentaries, they'll say, well, that's not what Jesus really said. Jesus mm. really said to the little puppies. Well, dogs are little puppies. Um, miss the point because when you're thinking about animals, particularly dogs, in uh, the Jewish context, they're not like our 
lovable pets that we have walking and uh, sometimes you uh, don't want to eat your vegetables and you feel feed them some scraps from the table uh, dogs were not domesticated fun members of the family dogs were uh, unclean uh, they were chased away from uh, from the cities uh, dogs was a it was a pejorative term that had some very clear racial implications uh, for people that were outside of, of uh, Ju uh, Judaism. It had to do with their mixed heritage and their mixed background. And so it is a really loaded term that I think you can't just exhume uh, the text from and say, oh, well, Jesus didn't mean it, or uh, Jesus is just you know, teaching a lesson. Actually, I think what Jesus is doing is more than that. Jesus is mirroring an attitude. It's not just like this, um, this class that Jesus is giving in political correctness or how we ought to be uh, socially aware. It's Jesus is mirroring an attitude uh, that he hopes we replicate, and we'll see what that attitude is in a second. But how do you how do you take uh, these tough words here in verse twenty six? Yeah, it seems like Jesus, and I think this this I think this is where you're going. It seems like Jesus is he comes to this place not so much just to reach out and help this Syrophoenician mm -hmm. woman, which he does, but so that his disciples can learn what it means. To interact with those who they consider outsiders mm. or abhorrent, mm -hmm. right? That they they re recognize, like you pointed out, she seems to have an understanding of of Jesus that his disciples haven't fully grasped yet either, right? That he is the Messiah, right? She seems to have this clear understanding of who he is that they have missed, and so. He wants them to understand that 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 even those that they consider as being these outsiders are those that have something to teach them, even as they have a responsibility mm -hmm. to share with these with those they consider outsiders as well. And here's what I love about this woman. By the way, uh, in the whole gospel, the most brilliant character in in the Gospel of Matthew. Because this woman engages Jesus in this, in this tit for tat, this yeah. theological tit for tat. So Jesus has already delineated kind of the relational dynamics that existed between a group that was uh, between a, uh, an individual that was race racially and because of her gender considered inferior. So Jesus has already set that relational dynamic. And the woman, instead of changing, notice how brilliant this is. Instead of attempting to change that relational dynamic and to shift the whole uh, anthropological reality of the ancient Near East, instead decides to engage Jesus tit for, in, in like what I like to call this theological tit for tat. So Jesus says, it's not okay to give the dog. And the woman says, ah, yes. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And in that moment, what she has done is she has she has flipped the whole script because she has uh, been able 
to recognize that a, a relationship of harmony with God has nothing to do with position or chosenness, which let's face it, for the Jews is the primary problem. The Jews can't accept Jesus because Jesus is a threat to a system that is based solely on your capacity to say, I am chosen, I am elect. And this woman, with one turn of phrase, flips that and says, it's all about the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus will answer. And he gives this, the same verbatim, uh, I, I, I guess it would be diagnostic mm -hmm. of a person uh, and it's, I think, the highest Jesus speaks of anyone in, in all the gospel. He does it twice to two Gentiles, to yeah. a centurion and to this woman. He says, um, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. This idea that within, within this, this recognition of just how undeserved grace is uh, lies the ability for us to truly, truly experience and express faith, yeah. and and the and the woman's daughter was healed. I know, it's it's so powerful because as the lesson talks about, faith seems even in the book of Matthew to come from unexpected mm -hmm. places, right? That these people that that the Jews would say, well, they don't have the truth. They are they are the ones who are outsiders. Mm. Um, the centurion, yes, he may be a helpful uh, person to to help us accomplish our goals, but he's never going to be more mm -hmm. than a Gentile. Even for for these people, um, Jesus is saying, Jesus says to these people that they consider outsiders, nowhere in Israel have I seen this much faith, right? And here to this woman, he says, you have great faith. Your request is granted. I mean, Jesus, it's almost like, Jesus went one extreme by by parroting mm -hmm. their their um, prejudices, and then he goes the other extreme and shows them, you 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 totally do not understand that in in the economy of God that this woman has more faith than even mm. you, even you who who look at her and see only a dog. This person that you consider mm. a dog has more faith than you. And it should then not be surprising that whereas uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus' encounter in Decapolis is followed by the miracle of the feeding, and Matthew chooses to follow. And that is ultimately the radical... Like, we think that it's cute, right? Oh, there were some fish and some loaves. Cute. Jesus made a lot of food. That's not what the story's about, right? The story's about the radical and obscene, overflowing abundance that is the kingdom of God. That's what the, in a, in a world and in a, in a situation where <laughs> defined by scarcity and where uh, you um, are always trying to simply survive. The kingdom breaks in with just overabundance. And so it, it, Jesus contradicts and the kingdom counteracts and counterbalances our systems of scarcity by the overflowing overabundance of the kingdom.
And the story of the, it's almost as if this miracle, this woman's realization opens the floodgates and in, in within the same chapter, you're going to have Jesus feeding 4,000 people until they are full. And again, like we said before, seven baskets are left. Yeah. The overabundance is extended beyond the borders of the 12 tribes to encompass those who are abhorrent, which then forces us to ask the question about us, because most times we read that story and we say, wow, that is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And we like to identify ourselves with the woman more than we do with the disciple in the story. <laughs> um, so if you look at the narrative in Matthew, the primary problem that people continue to have uh, with Jesus, again, is that they have the set of beliefs that hinge upon their election, their feeling of chosenness. Mm -hmm. And when it seems like Jesus isn't living up to those same guidelines that have defined them as chosen, mm -hmm. people reject them. Adventism likes to talk about a lot about its chosenness. And so I wonder if this particular story is not apropos for us today because it is it is inviting us to thoughtfully listen to the proclamations of faith that come from people whom we have abhorrent, whom we see as abhorrent. And then it's asking the question, is your sense of chosenness precluding you from experiencing the opulent abundance that is the kingdom of heaven? Wow. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's easy for us to identify with this Syrophoenician um, Greek woman because we are Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. We're not the Jews. And it's it's easy to look at these um Jewish followers of Jesus and say, well, they they certainly missed the point and certainly missed what Jesus was trying to do. But we often make the same mistake because we live in our little enclaves of whether it's the enclave of Adventism mm -hmm. or enclave of liberal Adventism mm -hmm. or conservative Adventism or whatever title we take, right? Historical Adventism, whatever title that we take. We live in those enclaves and we separate ourselves from each other and using the justification, well, we're the ones that understand. We're the ones with the truth. We're the ones that hold that. And so there is no room for other people to be able to teach us. And yet this story is so powerful because the point that he's trying to teach his closest followers seems to be the, these people that you devalue and as see as having no truth are actually sources of places where God is already at work and that you can learn from the work that God is doing in this mm -hmm. person's life. Like you, you need to have that openness and humility to learn from people that you have devalued as being unimportant. And when you do that, like you said, that's when we truly experience the overflow of God's grace. Mm -hmm. 
going to the story of the 4,000, the feeding of the 4,000, just trying to imagine what that would be like today. I mean, just imagine if if God walked into a restaurant and he just paid for everybody's bill. And then all of a sudden, like not only paid for everybody's bill, but there were like tens of thousands of dollars left over on the ground, right? That people could take home. I mean, what just... When I think about that scene, that would be a madhouse, Mm -hmm. right? People scrambling for the money, trying to grab money. And then they would look at Jesus like these people looked at Jesus like, this is our chance. Like he has, he has unlimited resources. He's going to change the world. Like, and, and, and the first step is really to think greed, like what can he do for me? And yet the whole point, like you said, the overflow was meant to go out, right? And instead of thinking, what can Jesus do for me? How can this overabundance benefit my life? The goal was actually go out and share this mm-hmm. overabundance, right? And share it with people that you you see as being outsiders, of being outside of the of the realm of what you think is right and true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. So good. We're almost out of time. I think what I what I stay with from what you just shared was this idea of having a teachable spirit, Mm. right? If Jesus could learn from a Syrophoenician woman, Mm. then I I think it it would be, it would behoove his followers and those who claim him to have the same capacity and the same humility to say, you know, I just want to, I just want to learn. Um, and so I think that's, that's where, that's where we leave it today. Um, as you, have a holiday season where people will come who you consider less than ideal to have in your house, but you have to because it's the holiday. How about if this year we choose, uh, as we look around the table, to say, hmm, what can I learn today? Maybe that, maybe that's where we start, and maybe then that expands uh, to the other relationships we have. So, Joey, we are out of time. Won't you pray with us as we, as we close today? Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who does not leave us on the margins, but actually stepped into the margins of our world and brought us in. Help us to follow in your footsteps with that same humility, that willingness to learn, that willingness to listen and see how you are moving, not just in our spaces, but in other people's spaces as well as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so in the words of Edwin Markham, He drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the will to win, for he drew a circle that brought him in. Go draw circles, friends. We'll see you next week. (music) 